the idea of regenerative farming for us and building that resiliency is, is about helping to cope with droughts. Um, the idea of drought-proofing your farm is actually a myth. You cannot do that. What we can drought-proof is our business. But if you look around here, you know, we've got extremely happy cows enjoying what we've got them doing. Um, and they're only in here for such a brief time. They're actually pruning the grasses. They're, they're disturbing the soil. They're putting dung and urine down. They're fertilising it. So there's, you know, with that time frame that we have them here, it's, such a, it, it's, it's all about the ecological benefit. Um, you know, so they play a critical role for us in improving this environment. So even if you were the most... This is Graham Finlayson. He and his wife Cathy have a 9,000-acre certified organic farm in Brewarina in northwest New South Wales. We've been on this place since 1994, which was uh, the year our daughter was born, and, um, but born and bred in the district, yeah. Their daughter Harriet has moved back to the farm to work alongside her parents as well as run a chicken enterprise on the property. We're just at the chicken caravan, so this is where I have all my laying birds at the moment. So we're looking at my, I guess you could call it the baby coop, which is the first small coop that the chicks go into. Um, we're quite lucky in this environment. It doesn't get too cold for a chicken. And in summertime, there, it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely um, good chicken weather. So I incubate them now, hatch them and put them out onto the grass day one out of the egg. Hi, I'm Sam Loy and welcome to Propagate the show for young farmers and fishers. This season, we're having a look at how young farmers are throwing away that farming blueprint and finding ways to make their business work. From juggling off-farm jobs, trying new ways of selling cattle and investing in new tech. I'll also take a look at the other side of the business because no matter how well your livestock or crops are going, if you don't manage the business well, things can go very wrong. The farmers I'll be talking to tell me what resiliency methods they're using to make sure they're prepared for whatever the future brings. Out at Brewarina, the Finlaysons predominantly run breeding cattle on their property. We also run cattle on adjustment at my brother's place, which is uh, not far away, and we've been building that herd up for the last three years. Since returning to the family farm, Harriet has been helping her parents with the cattle as well as looking after her chickens. Being back and working alongside her parents has already taught her a lot about resilience and thinking ahead. My parents have been able to get through those hard times because of farming in that way. So it's definitely shown me that it's possible by living through that, I guess. And and yeah, and then being home, like I've always wanted to come back home because it is just a very positive environment and it's a lot of fun as well. Living in such a dry part of the state can be hard, with rainfall unpredictable and inconsistent. Brewarren is a, a rainfall zone that's about 380 millimetres average, you know, but it's an incredibly varied amount of rainfall. You know, we can go from 100 mils to 850 mils and so that, that variability can affect how we manage things. But yeah, we had seven years that were, uh, we averaged 280 millimetres over the whole period. Then we had six years where we averaged 520 millimetres over that period. This is how cyclical it is. 
what I've always maintained is that it's almost an expected variability. You know, it's a, it's consistently inconsistent if you understand that. You could call Graham and his family drought experts. They've survived two severe droughts within a decade and have pulled through remarkably well, thanks to some regenerative farming practices. Regenerative farming for us is um, has become more and more important. It's obviously a dry, brittle environment and, and the property that we're on, when we came here we realised how degraded it was. So our focus, once we learned that it was possible, became very much around um, increasing the resiliency of this landscape. During the millennium drought years, when times were tough, Graham read a book on holistic management by Alan Savory, a Zimbabwean ecologist. What he learned was that they could use their cattle as a tool to improve the quality of their soil. This drove them toward regenerative agriculture. That was quite exciting. That was a start for us. For us, being regenerative is exactly the same as is building resiliency into the system. So um, in this environment, what we've learned to deal more carefully with, I guess, is, is that response of plants to animals grazing them. So instead of having a small number of animals on a large area for long periods of time, our approach has been to have larger mobs of animals on smaller areas of, of the place for very short periods of time. So that involved a lot of infrastructure development, a lot of fencing. We've gone from eight paddocks to 170 paddocks, so that gives us a lot more control. Um, and there's a lot to that. There's a lot to the effect of the animal on the landscape itself when they're there. And it's, it's really about using biology. You know, animals are part of the necessary biology in this environment. And through those tough years, they could see a significant improvement on their land. So that's what our focus has really been on. And, you know, the, our ability to improve this landscape is, is uh, far greater than most people realise. You know, that's, um, that's the exciting part about it. And it's a very positive way of looking at agriculture as well. Rather than fighting droughts, we're sort of, you know, using it as an impetus to improve things, um, which psychologically is a far better way of dealing with droughts as well, you know. Droughts for us are really just a drier period. You know, we don't like to think of them as a, a great event. It's just something that there's different levels of all the time. Yeah. From a bigger picture point of view and looking at climate change and, and some of these things that are, you know, however controversial people might think they are, they, you know, there's a lot of evidence to point towards um, conditions becoming more erratic and more variable and more extreme. We live in an environment where we've had to deal with that anyway. So if it's going to be amplified, I think we really need to, to look at the, the best things that we can do to help us deal with it, basically. Um, and that all leads and points towards creating resiliency in your landscape. You know, so we want to be able to have more perennial grasses. We want to maintain better ground cover, have better water infiltration. So if we do get big amounts of rain quickly, then we want the capacity of our land to take that water up and, and conserve it, basically. It's pretty simple stuff. Um, but it's not what conventional management will give you. It won't give you that result. You know, you're going to have degraded landscapes that are only going to get worse. So, yeah, I guess you know, worrying about things we can't control isn't our major driver. But what we do focus on helps deal with those big, big picture problems. You know, um, and you know, at the same time, we can produce a very healthy quality product and increase the biodiversity in our landscape. And there's you know there's so many good reasons to do 
manage things how we are, it's almost a side benefit that it helps deal with climate change as well. Despite Graham's efforts, there have still been big challenges. Not long after the millennium drought ended, they ran into another lengthy dry spell. I think we had 96 months where we averaged 220 millimetres. So that was, yeah, and without a break in it, really, which was far worse than the millennium drought and worse than, you know, anything in recorded history here. So, so there's not much you can do about that, you know, as far as trying to eke out a production system on the place. So we, to deal with those long, savage droughts like that, you, you pretty well can't get blood out of a stone, you know. So we, we destock and, you know, we've always been capable and willing to make a living doing something else, you know. I don't think there's enough focus on that. We're capable, we've got two arms and two legs and we can go and do other things, you know. So we've been able to do that, which is very fortunate. So they eventually end, that's the thing. (laughs) Um, The trouble is we don't know how long they go for. During this time, Graham and Cathy de-stocked and got jobs off-farm to supplement their income. Yeah, I'd be lying to say if you don't question your sanity even. So we'd come home and, and I'd always be a bit down when I came home, you know, I'd look around and, you know, things were pretty horrible, really. On the upside, getting rid of the stock meant the land wasn't being impacted, giving it time to rehabilitate. And it didn't take long for Graham to see the positive results. You know, I'd drive around, I'm thinking, well, at least it's still there, like the ground cover, as limited as it was, was still there. Our country wasn't blowing And by that I mean we didn't have dust blowing off our country and we had massive dust storms all around us. But yeah, those long stretches like that, well, that was, you know, eight years. Like that tests, that'd test Jesus himself, I think. But but in the end, like it's almost like it's worth it, you know? Yeah, Yeah, now it's worth it. Like looking back, you're like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You forget how bad it was when it's good and then you forget how good it can be when it's bad. Because it is such a slow process of seeing the rewards but when you do you look back and you're like okay yeah that was definitely the right decision to make as the drought began to break they could see small changes in the landscape that were a direct result of their regenerative farming methods well it's exciting at first to see plants in a bare area but now we go out and we find two plants we've never seen before so then it just like keeps can, yeah, obviously that's yeah. with, but they're better. Rain. That's right. There's higher succession. There's more better plants coming in as well. Yeah. When it comes to the future, Graham says the industry needs more people to embrace regenerative methods. Yeah, we need a way of letting people into the industry and onto the landscape that have that passion because that's that's what drives change and going forward and. It will get dry again. It'll get tough again. And we need people with the right attitudes to try and make that better each time. And Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm excited about the next drought, but I'm certainly excited that our landscape can handle like a normal type of... Normally droughts, people talk... It can be dry for a year and people are talking drought. Well, we've got a system that can see us through that easily. You know, if the next generation is committed, then it's very easy to make decisions for the longer term. And if you're frightened of droughts, you probably shouldn't be farming in Australia. Graham's daughter Harriet is part of that next group of farmers looking to pick up from the previous generation and keep going. And over time, she's taken on more and more responsibilities. I think we run the farm together. 
<laughs> so I was a family and dad's definitely. Yeah, you certainly had to take on responsibility. We, we are, and we still are, um, part of another role we have, we're, we're away quite a lot. So, yeah, you know, the responsibility, of it's not, you know, the way we manage livestock as well, it's not something you can sit and forget, you know, it's, it's every day you're checking on things or moving cattle or um, dealing with those situations, plus, you know, trying to develop our own enterprise with the chickens and, yeah, there's plenty to do and be responsible for and, and to, yeah, to be honest, after being away to boarding school and university and overseas or whatever for so long, she's, she's come back and, and done a lot of catching up, really, and, yeah, we've been very impressed. During the COVID epidemic, Harriet really stepped up, managing the farm on her own for the two years her parents worked off-farm. I've always enjoyed um, my own company and being out here by myself was, has never been a problem. There's a lot of animals here, so you're not really <laughs> ever alone. And yeah, with something to do every day, it's yeah, you're not, didn't really ever think too much about it, you know, that it was just me here, always felt busy and, and full. But during COVID, that was when it felt, quite isolated for the first time because it's fine being here for long periods of time by yourself because you know you can get away and getting away um, is something that my parents and I we all think is very important because obviously you get away you get to sort of just refresh come back with new perspectives and yeah that's always good so during COVID not being able to do that was difficult but I guess lucky for me, I got a boyfriend that I could <laughs> annoy through it. And um, and he's a carpenter, so very busy building things through that time. <laughs> These days, Graham and Kathy are focusing on ways to prepare their farm for whatever the future might bring. We've found there's no real upper limit to how vicious a drought can be. <laughs> it's very hard to drought-proof that. And it's often talked about, you know, but it is a myth. Yeah, there's a lot of ways we can drought-proof the business. Um, the financial incentive to not starve is a good start. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got, you know, there's many people on farms that could have got on the front foot and got off-farm jobs, you know. I don't think there's sometimes there's a bit of a stigma around that, you know, you failed on-farm by. So people would rather persevere and, and buy in feed and be busy, be busy battling the drought rather than just take a step back and say, listen, let's just put park that side of the business and concentrate on something else. Um, we've sort of had more financial pressure because we'd bought in and developed the place and spent money and have debt. You know, there's plenty of people that, if you're in a position to invest off-farm, invest in the share market, have real estate, you know, there's, there's other ways you can do to have passive income to deal with that rather than physically get off-farm and work as well. But for us it was, yeah, there was an opportunity came up to, to help a, a company develop land along the same sort of line so we'd you know the timing with that I guess was pretty good so we're fortunate like that but if that hadn't have been the case then you know we'd been through droughts before we'd we'd run a tourism enterprise on the place as you know so diversification is a part of drought proofing the business diversifying thing you know into things that don't rely on rainfall you know so there's always I've always liked that idea complementary enterprises you know, some of the training we've had and the people we've learned from it one way they they look at it is you know we're, we're either going into a drought, in a drought, or coming out of a drought. They're the three phases that we are constantly in. So if you think about it like that, then you can actually, you know, that's 
that's not a bad way of looking at it because then you can look at what do we need to do for the landscape, the livestock, the finances, the people in each of those phases. Another part of their diversification has been Harriet's chickens. Chickens love dry situations, so (laughs) they work well. I started out with multiple different breeds just to see what does the best here. So I had wine dotes, australorps, silver spangled humbergs. That's what I started with originally and I still have some of them now. And yeah, basically then kept out of those birds what uh, suits this environment the best and have bred them myself from there. So I did get up to having 60 chickens in the caravan that we there was a caravan that belonged to my grandparents that we gutted the inside and turned into a movable chicken coop. So it's literally a chicken caravan. Harriet was influenced by Joel Salatin, who farms a variety of animals to improve the landscape on his property in America. We have a bunch of his books on the shelf that I've read and then was lucky enough to go and see him speak in person in Mudgee at a field day. And I'm pretty sure he was one of the first people to do the movable chicken tractors like yeah and use that concept and I've always loved chickens and I just thought that that's very similar concept to what we do with cows but with chickens so it just makes sense and there isn't anyone free-ranging and moving chickens around in the way that I do anywhere close to here the closest is about four five hundred kilometers from here so yeah it's not very common but it just works really well like I'm surprised that there hasn't been anyone yet start up a chicken whether it be layers or meat birds because they do suit this environment really well and we have such a variety of plants that I've seen them eat a little bit of everything where I've had them so far so they obviously enjoy it and do well off it and I've found that because I buy in organic grain for them but I actually have to feed them less of it when I'm moving them frequently because they do forage quite a lot. After moving back home, Harriet noticed something missing from her local community. I think the main thing is having lived away, especially in the city, the access to food there is like you have access to the best food and you can source really high quality um, organic food from all sorts of regenerative farms and then to come home and there isn't any food in town that is local. So that's sort of a, a big thing for me. That's like I'm quite passionate about local people eating local food and also really good quality food and them having complete transparency with where their food comes from which just seems a bit crazy how people in the city can be more connected to their food but the food here comes from the city (laughs) um yeah I'm pretty sure most of the brands in town are yeah they come on a truck 900 kilometers yeah it just seems a bit crazy to me so that's one of the main motivators was if I can provide local food for local people that is also going to be high quality for them and ties into everything else that we do here. Like just a, a byproduct of us improving our landscape here as well. As for the business model, 
It's early days for Harriet's chickens. And it doesn't have to be about major money-making enterprise. This chicken enterprise is probably a long way off being profitable. Yes. Um, <laughs> so it's being subsidised <laughs> by the cow herd at the moment, but, yeah, but that's which okay, I'm, you know. Yeah, and I'm yeah. fortunate enough to be in a position where I can really experiment with that and build that whilst we obviously have the cattle as the main business. So I, I know that I am lucky with that, but because of that, I don't have an excuse to not do it right. So like, I feel like because I'm in that position, I have to do it the best in the best way possible. Yeah, I've always loved that idea of layering. You know, it's, it's almost diversification should be about layering enterprises and, and what else. I think the holistic management sort of way of thinking is that, you know, that looking at your total resource base, which includes your water and soils and plants and people and natural ability. And there's any amount of things you can look at and think, well, what can we do? You know, what ideas can we come up with? Um, and it's sort of, you know, sort of unlimited, really. Yeah. yeah. And having those multiple species as well, um, you find that you can solve certain problems with the cows by using the chickens and yeah so that's yeah and you know like there's too many you know the thinking has often been that you know people are a merino breeder or something like that you know it's just it limits your thinking you know so we run cattle and we're passionate about what we're doing with the cattle but that's that's just um part of what we do too and what we're about and how we're trying to deal with things so yeah, I think it just frees your thinking up a little bit more. We're certainly open to discussion on everything, you know. You know it's, it's a challenge for family operations to, to run them like a business, and there has to be a part of that. If you're serious about your future and you know, being financially profitable and, and being sustainable long-term, then you have to, it has to be looked at more as a business than it, than it has probably historically. You know, it's, we're in a very fortunate period at the moment where we're having good rainfall, and high commodity prices. So it's a bit of a sweet spot, you know, and the temptation would be to fall into a bit of a lull there and not concentrate on that stuff, but we've been through enough tough times to know this, you know, it's not going to continue. Having your head stuck in the books, sorting out finances and management of the property, it can be exhausting for any farmer. The stress and anxiety can easily become too much. So what do you do to turn off and relax? For Graham... It's as simple as getting out onto the farm. I can just get so much relaxation and benefit out of switching off all the responsibility I have around some of the financials and people management stuff and go out and move the cows. And that's just like, you know, I can, I can relax here, really. guess in a way the chickens were sort of that for me, like just something that my own as well. And, and it was... It's obviously like I'm trying to make it into a profitable business, but at the same time, it's very enjoyable. So that was sort of like, I looked at what I did with that. But getting away is, yeah, definitely just visiting friends. And while doing that, I always make sure if I do go to visit friends that I line up a visit with like a farm that like people I've been following. Because as I said before, there isn't a lot of people around here doing that. So it's nice to go meet like-minded people in that way I guess social media as well I know social media can be not very good for <laughs> your mental state but it's been really good too because sharing what we do here 
other people enjoy that and yeah that's enjoyable for me to be able to share that and someone be like you know I I love seeing what you guys do and they ask questions and you yeah that formed a bit of a community through that as well. That's undervalued I think in agriculture as well you know farmers learning from farmers you know there's it's sort of perceived that you know we're in competition with each other which is just rubbish you know everyone's in competition with themselves it's as simple as that you know and and it could be a very positive thing and, and we've hosted field days and things and you know it's, it's hard to try and promote that sort of idea but there's a real benefit in it having different personalities and different ways of looking at things inside a family business is pretty critical i think it, well, it's a real advantage for us yeah instead of being a problem it should be an advantage yeah there was a conference or a field day or something we went to once and I think Dad told me about a, f- a farm in Argentina and they have a 700-year vision. And, yeah, that's always stuck in my head. Like I love the idea of thinking that far ahead and it's something that my parents have said as well. Is just, yeah, it makes you think really differently about right now when you're making decisions for that far ahead. And given his experience, Graham has some advice for farmers out there who might be worried about the possibility of droughts in the future. Yeah, we learned early on that we don't try and fight droughts. We haven't drought-fed animals in over 20 years in an incredibly dry part of the world um, with two of the biggest droughts in history, and, we still have, and we've still stuck to that policy. So you can do it. Yeah, we, we've just dived back into a breeding enterprise, and we're quite passionate about what we're trying to breed. But at the end of the day, if we want to have a future here, we have to put the landscape first. So whatever we do and however we manage that, managing stocking rate to carry capacity and constantly looking at regenerating our landscape is just of the utmost importance. In those long droughts, it's almost a defensive strategy. The reason we destock is we do not want to damage our country beyond what the drought itself will do. You know, it's always considered, oh, the landscape will bounce back when it eventually rains, and it does. It's incredibly resilient, really, but does it bounce as high as it should? And does it bounce back with the same vigour and the same volume and the same biodiversity as it would if you looked after it better in those drought periods? And that's what um, our focus has been about, and I've got no doubt it does. It actually repays you for the decisions. We've been 20 years trying to improve things here, and every time I go out of the paddock, I look at how we can improve things. Um, so that's exciting. You know. We don't know what the upper limit is. That's the thing. We, we do know that the landscape... 150 years ago was very different than it is now and we haven't got back to that yet so we could take it potentially beyond that you know so so that's exciting thanks to graham and harriet finlayson for speaking with us and sharing their story in this episode all episodes of season five of propagate are out now find them wherever you get your podcasts and on the next episode of Propagate. Yeah. Like we were here literally stamping fire out. We had buckets of water and trying to stop it, get to the house. Propagate is a podcast from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries and an initiative by the Young Farmer Business Programme. <laughs>